Good morning again. Um, we are continuing our series, as you saw there in the intro video, called The Church I See. And as we kind of move forward into this next season at SunWest, uh, we wanted to spend a number of weeks here just reflecting on uh, the DNA of what God has uh, placed in this community, in this faith community, uh, the, the parts of who we are that uh, are just important integral parts about who we want to be as we move forward, but also dreaming about new things, new ways of being, new, new ways of serving our communities and one another that maybe haven't been part of who we are. And uh, the first week we used the analogy of uh, well digging, right, in the story in Genesis there, um, where Isaac had gone and he had dug, uh, re-dug old wells that his father had dug uh, generations earlier because there was still water that he wanted to access there. But he also went forward and dug new wells uh, to find uh, living water there. And I believe that we're entering into a season where we're both the, uh, reestablishing some of the foundations that make SunWest who we are, makes the church what it is, uh, but also dreaming about uh, what God wants uh, to do that's new here among us. But the core of who we are is in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, and those are uh, kind of just churchy ways of saying, uh, referring to a couple of teachings that Jesus did, one being that uh, the greatest commandment was to love God and love people. And when somebody asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the first one is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And we believe that's an anchoring point for what the church is about, but also the Great Commission, which we'll look at in a second again in Matthew 28, uh, where, where Jesus uh, commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them how to live in the way of Jesus. And so it's with that anchor, with, with that foundation that we, we move forward and we dream and we envision uh, what God is leading us into next. And the reason we call it vision uh, is because it's, it's really, uh, it's a seeing word. So when we picture in our minds what God is calling us to, what do you see? And so we want to just imagine, we want to paint a picture of, uh, of where God is lead, leading us and what God is doing. So just to recap a little bit about, uh, about what we chatted about last week. Um, in our, there, there's a cultural shift that's happening in, in Canada, in, and specifically in Canada, but also in the wider uh, North America as well. Uh, at, w- at one time, uh, there was quite a, what, what I referred to last week as a nominal, uh, nominal Christianity. There was, a, there was a cultural assumption of Christian ethics and values uh, in our culture. Uh, and over time, that, that, that has actually uh, decreased. And statistics show that more and more and more, the, the, uh, the assumed ethics and, and morality and uh, belief systems of our culture at large are becoming less and less uh, identifiable with those of uh, the Christian faith. This presents an interesting situation when we think about the mission of the church because in previous generations, there was this assumption or this this parallelism between uh, church culture and also the culture at large. And so what would happen uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, there was what was known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And the idea was that uh, churches would basically put on services uh, that reflected the values of culture, 
Uh, and because those, there was so much parallel between the values of culture and the values of the church, that was possible. And hopefully we would do it really, really well, that people would want to come. And then when they, when they came, we would try and convince them to come to church more than just at Easter and Christmas. That was really the, uh, to oversimplify it, kind of the heart behind that. SunWest was planted uh, kind of in that era, in that vein, uh, that we wanted to be a, a church that uh, basically got rid of any barriers that were between God and people. We wanted to be relevant uh, to the world around us. And uh, we wanted our neighbors and our friends to be a part of our worship community with us. And, and the heart of that still exists. But we must recognize that times are changing and culture is changing. And perhaps uh, our approach uh, needs to change as well. And so that's a little bit of what I want to dive into uh, this morning. And the, the talk this morning is called Mission is Greater Than Maintenance. I hate maintenance. Uh, from dishwashers to cars to, I'm just really, really bad at it. Um, you know, I wait till my car makes like these bad grinding sounds and I think, man, I probably need to get an oil change. And, uh, and, I, and I wonder why the, the lifespan isn't as long as uh, it should be. But uh, maintenance is important. But uh, I believe that, that God is calling the church not just to maintenance, not just to, to keeping things going, uh, but to always be forward-looking, always be dreaming, always be envisioning about what God is calling us to, uh, seeking Him and where He's leading us to, and not just settling for maintaining the status quo or what currently is happening. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity uh, said this. He said, in every church there is something which sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. Read that one more time. In every church... There is something which sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. If you look at movements of God in faith communities throughout history, you'll notice a couple of things happen. That often there's a, there's a founder of a movement that has uh, an incredible encounter with God, a life-transforming encounter, and he creates... Uh, he, 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 there's disciples and there's, there's, there's people that he works with. Uh, followers of Jesus, and, and you have a movement that starts. But what happens when that, that founder dies or that founder moves on is that those movements institutionalize uh, what was an authentic experience in one generation moves into an institution in the next. And I think this is a little bit of what C.S. Lewis is getting at, that in every church there's something which sooner or later works against the very purpose for which it came into existence. And the word maintenance suggests inwardly focused activities and strategies for organizational survival with no necessary linkage to the original mission or the organization. Or as dictionary.com suggests, maintenance is the work of keep, keeping something in proper condition through upkeep. Upkeep and maintenance, these are, these are words that I just don't want to be used to describe me or describe us. So when you think about this, the, the seeker-sensitive idea that I talked about, this, um, or what, what could be called as an attractional way of uh, being on mission, right? And so the, the idea was basically this, that you bring your, bring your friends, bring your people, bring your family to church, and we will present Jesus to them for you. But as we saw, as nominal Christianity is diminishing, this becomes less and less effective. But the piece of this DNA that we need to keep, that, 
um, I, uh, I have a resolution to keep is that we must assume nothing and explain everything. Assume nothing and explain everything. And I hope that if you're new here this morning that you don't have, uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, that uh, we want to unapologetically be about Jesus. But I hope that there isn't a whole lot of religious stuff going on that doesn't make, that makes absolutely no sense to you. Do you guys see the difference? We want to assume nothing, explain everything, but we want to unapologetically uh, be about following Jesus. So there's a new well that we need to dig. The church can't do for you what you can only do for yourself and for those in your life that will never darken the door of a church. There's something that only you can do that we can't do for you. That, we, that means we need a new commitment, I believe, to the Great Commission, which we find in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And I'll, I'll read it again, uh, as I read last week. Uh, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go. Can you guys say go? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so last week we talked about it's all about discipleship. That there's more churches closing in Canada than there are churches opening, but at the heart of it, we don't have a church planting problem. We actually have a discipleship problem. We have an ownership problem. We have... uh, we have a coming out of an era where people were just content to kind of attend church on a weekend, but not necessarily live in a way that radically follows Jesus. Uh, and so there wasn't disciples that are making disciples that are making disciples. And, and we want to get back to the heart of discipleship, back to the, this idea of owning uh, your own faith, but also owning the, the mission that God has called you to be a part of in this world. And I want to focus on two aspects of the Great Commission this morning. Go, which you read out loud. Uh, Moving from a come-and-go attractional culture to a go-and-tell missional culture. And the word all nations. The two words there in the English. And we see these words reflected in our SunWest mission, which we read every single week, which Colton read again this morning, uh, that SunWest exists to guide all people. There we see the word all again. All people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And so... If you're to look into the Greek language with this, with which this was written in, the word all here, get this, means all. <laughs> like everyone. Every single person. And the word lifelong means lifelong. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a word that reflects the, the heart of discipleship. Uh, and so when, when we think of the lifelong authentic relationship with Jesus, we actually didn't have the, the word lifelong in that mission statement originally. We added it years later because uh, we believe that people aren't just pa- called to make a decision to follow Jesus. They're actually called into a lifelong relationship with Jesus. And obviously Jesus Christ, uh, it's all about Jesus. Uh, and so all lifelong Jesus, these are words that I want to focus on this morning. And I, I preached on this concept uh, a couple years ago, and I'm, I'm going to bring it up again Uh, that there's two very different ways of thinking about uh, mission and what it means to be a faith community. Uh, And the first is a bounded set approach, which is the technical term for it. Uh, And you could also think of fences, right? And so the bounded set approach uses markers to identify who is in and out. So if you went to a golf course, I remember when I first started golfing and I showed up, uh, and I had jeans and a t-shirt on and like some flip-flops 
And I walked in there, and I immediately knew that I didn't belong there. Guys had their shirts tucked in, collared shirts, these fancy jeans that my grandpa wore, uh, fancy shoes with cleats on them, and and uh, and I went to I went to play the game of golf, and they and they looked at me and they they said, "Can I help you?" I was like, "Yeah, I'm here to play golf." They're like, "No, you're not." I'm like, "Well, why not?" I was like, "Well, you need a collared shirt, and you can't play in sandals." And I, I I very quickly became aware that there was a there was a set of expectations and rules in this to be a part of this club, and nobody bothered to inform me before I showed up. That's just true with that's true with golf clubs. That's tr- true with, uh, you know, when you show up at a sports game, there's, there's things that identify you as a fan of a certain sports game. That's true when you go to certain churches, you know, you got to be a hipster and wear skinny jeans and, oh, okay, that's the, that's the, that's the kind of uh, the outfit that I got to wear here. Uh, or you go to other churches and you got to wear business clothes or a Sunday best and uh, maybe there's other churches in there that you get to wear sweatpants. Uh, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, that, or... There's things that might identify you if you're a follower of Jesus. We have these identifiers that tell you whether you're in or you're out. Uh, so, you know, when I was growing up, like, if, if you were a Christian, you didn't dance. And so people make fun of my dance move. And, I, and it was just, you know, this, I was trying to follow Jesus as best I could, which means I couldn't dance. So uh, all glory to God. Uh, I regret that now. Uh, there was other indicators. You couldn't drink alcohol or you couldn't smoke cigarettes or whatever those things were, right? And so I remember growing up in a small town and, uh, you know, my friends in high school, you know, they would go and get drunk on the weekends. Uh, and I had a specific friend named Mike. And I remember he was in our youth group and then he went and he, and he partied with uh, some non-church kids one weekend and he got drunk. And then the, the next week in school, it was like he was out, because he, he, he didn't, he kind of, he just ignored the, the boundary that we had set in place that was just assumed. And so this, this kind of thinking tries to establish what makes somebody in and what makes somebody out. Uh, and so the point becomes getting somebody on the inside of that line. That's the whole, that's the whole point. And so you can change what that line is. You know, a, a common line, you know, in, in my growing up was, you know, we want to get people to say a prayer to accept Jesus. And that's a really, really good thing. But when that becomes the identifier, uh, it actually stops becoming about a discipleship. It actually becomes about getting people to do that thing. And so what you happen is you have a whole bunch of people that are either outside the line or inside the line, but that line becomes the whole reason that you exist. This, re- this is reflected, this type of idea is reflected in the Old Testament. So the, the first part of your Bible before Jesus comes, uh, we see this type of bounded set thinking in the Old Testament, in the Jewish uh, kind of worship system. You had the temple, and inside the temple, you had the Holy of Holies. And in this Holy of Holies was, uh, you know, the Jews believed that God dwelt in this place uh, in a unique way, different than any other place on earth. This is the place where heaven and earth kind of coexist and collide. And then you had different levels of courts outside of that. You had, um, you know, a closer court that just had only mint or only, uh, there's a, there a 
piece that only priests were allowed to be a part of. Then there was a part that only men were allowed to be a part of, Jewish men. Uh, women couldn't come in that. And then there was an outer court beyond, beyond that where only Jewish people, women and children included, were allowed to be in that. And then out of the, outside of that, uh, then there was Gentiles or pagans or people that weren't Jewish that were allowed to be outside of that circle. And so you have these, uh, these levels of holiness in uh, each one of those levels, there was identifiers which made you able to go into that next level. And so you kind of had a, the Gentile lands, and then you had the Holy Land, and then you had the Holy City, the Holy Temple, and then different courts uh, within that temple, and then you had the Holy of Holies where God himself dwelt. And so this idea is a very religious idea. It, comes, uh, it even is talked about in our Old Testament. But something crazy happened. God, the creator God who created heaven and earth, in John chapter 1, verse 14, said the word, and so just to be clear what the word is, uh, in John 1, verse 1, it said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in John 1, 14, it says that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So God is the word in the beginning, and God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. In theology, this is referred to as the incarnation. God becoming flesh, incarnate. And so Jesus lived this life. Jesus was God with, with skin on, and he, he lived this life on earth. And Scripture teaches that he led, led the, sinless, the sinless life. He was in perfect relationship with God because he, he was God, but he was a limited form of God, a fleshly form of God. So this is the, the mystery of the Trinity that has been affirmed through the church since its inception. And Jesus led the sinless life, that he revealed God to us. And in Hebrews it says that uh, when, you look at God, when you look at Jesus, you actually see God. That Jesus is the very likeness of God. And so Jesus lived this life and then he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He died on the cross as a demonstration of this, uh, this just benevolent, generous, self-sacrificial love that was completely radical to how the Jewish people and other uh, faiths would have understood God to be like. And in Matthew 27, verse 50, at the moment of death on the, on the cross, Jesus shouted again and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so what happens in this moment, don't miss this, this is incredibly important to who God has called us to be, is that the Holy of Holies, which was separated by this curtain, that you had to be, you know, that you had to, kind of identify with these certain things in order to be in. You know, only a high priest once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies. And then only the priests, other priests, got to kind of go close to the Holy of Holies. And so that Holy of Holies, that sacred space, that exclusive space was torn open. The symbolism here is that that God would not be confined to a separate space, that actually the whole world was created to be sacred. 
The whole world was created to be his temple. Uh, and if you go into Revelation, at the, Revelation 21 and 22, you will see that the picture of uh, the new heavens and the new earth, when God remakes everything, is the picture of the Holy of Holies as the earth. You know, so the writer John in Revelation is saying that the earth itself becomes the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. And that all people, back to Matthew 28, all people have access to God himself. We see this concept again in Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude to that of Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So we see the idea again, this idea of incarnation, this, this God who was separate, who was other than, who was holy, who was separate, uh, that only few people throughout history had access to him, left that place, invaded our world, took on the nature of a slave, was made in human form. He humbled himself and died a criminal's death on a cross. And we see after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that everything starts to change. And here's one example. You have a story in Acts, and there's a, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, a devout Jew who spent a couple of years following Jesus very closely. Uh, there was a Roman off, army officer named Cornelius, so not a Jew, and he had a vision. In the vision, he was told to send guys to a town called Joppa to get a man named Simon Peter. The next day, Peter had a vision on the roof of his house, and this is what the text reads. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? So the next day, or sorry, uh, at that moment, the men that Cornelius sent showed up at Peter's house, and God had told him right before they arrived to go with them. So Peter went with them to Cornelius' house. And then we have this conversation. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with it or visit with a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. See, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus didn't come to create a new, new identifiers of who was in and out. Jesus came to make the relationship with God the relationship that religion tried to acquire through human effort, but he, Jesus came to undo religion and make that relationship with God accessible to every person. See, religion is people trying to figure out how to access God, but the gospel is Jesus as God breaking down every barrier to access the human heart. And so I'd like to propose a different way of thinking about it. Um, instead of bounded set thinking or fence thinking, and, and so even the idea of fences, right? So, the, so that comes from 
Uh, I'm going to compare it to wells, right? So a fence, you know, farmers build fences to keep their livestock in and the livestock neighboring farms out, right? So you, you kind of identify who's your, <coughs> you know, I grew up in southern Manitoba. Which are your cows and which are your neighbor's cows? And you had fences. But in places where there's a large land mass and the mass is too large to build a fence, uh, they, farmers build wells and they have precious water supply. And it is assumed that the livestock, though they will wander, will never go too far lest they die. And so they always come back to a center point. <clears throat> a couple years ago on Halloween, and I think it was actually right before I spoke on this uh, last time, um, it was, Halloween was on a, I, don't know, it was a, I think it was on a Saturday night, and uh, my, my neighbors down the street, a couple of my neighbors were in their driveway having a fire, uh, drinking beer, and, uh, and they invited me to come down and have a beer and sit by the fire with them. And so I did, and I, you know, we're sitting there uh, having a good time, having a good conversation. And, uh, and my one neighbor there always loves to, loves to ask me, what are you preaching about? And I was, I was talking about this concept the next day, and I said, I said well, I'm, I'm, I'm actually talking about how uh, religion doesn't work. And the other neighbor sits up in his chair, he's like, now, that's something I can get behind. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. It's like, I've never been, like, one for that religion stuff, and, uh, and so they start asking me questions, and, uh, and I said, you know, I just... It doesn't work because it's about human effort. I said, at the end of the day, I, I'm just all about Jesus. You can call it whatever you want, but I love Jesus, and I want to follow Jesus. Um, and uh, and that's, that's what I'm about. And, 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 that, and that really reflects this idea of well, of well thinking, of centered set thinking. And so what happens if we re- remove barriers and the question doesn't become around who's in or out, or we spend effort trying to figure out how to get people in and identify if they're still in or whatever that means. I don't even know. Um, but actually, the question becomes about are people moving towards Jesus? Are people moving towards Jesus? Are, are people recognizing the beauty of God revealed in Jesus? Are people opening their hearts to God? And sometimes that gets a little messy. But I believe that discipleship is messy. And in John chapter 4, uh, we don't have time to read it today. I would encourage you to maybe read it this week. But go to John chapter 4. There's a fascinating conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Uh, and she would be out according to the tradition that Jesus was coming from. And Jesus breaks down all these boundaries in this conversation. And in the conversation, Jesus, Jesus, because, you know, they're sitting by a well, and Jesus says, I have living water. Anybody who drinks the water I give will never grow thirsty again. And the woman says, I want some of that water. Are people moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Are we proclaiming with our words and with our lives the radical, scandalous, offensive love of God because it doesn't discriminate against anybody? Or are we 
creating these man-made boundaries to create a different religion that Jesus actually didn't intend. So just to review, what happens when you have a boundary is that everybody gathers around the line. So it's actually not about discipleship. And discipleship is becoming more and more like Jesus. It becomes about the line. And so as a follower of Jesus, if you kind of create some boundary and you say, this is, the, this is it, then our whole energy goes towards that line. So let's say the line is church attendance. Then everything we're about becomes about church attendance. Well, is that really the thing? Is that really the measuring stick that Jesus calls us to? So regardless of where people might find themselves, you know, the question that we need to ask is are people moving towards Jesus or are they moving away from Jesus? And in our conversations, are we perpetuating some kind of religious boundary that Jesus wasn't even about because Jesus was in the business of breaking down barriers and boundaries to present this loving, benevolent, gracious, forgiving God who's king, who we sang about this morning, that every knee will bow. But our hope is that they bow not because they have to, but because they want to, because the beauty of God is so mind-blowing amazing. And this is what made Jesus so scandalous. This is why the Jewish people crucified Jesus on the cross, because he represented a God that was offensive to them. Because their God had these clear, strict boundaries of identifying who was in and out. And then Jesus started preaching to them, and they realized, according to, their, according to Jesus, they were actually out. And they were simply out because they, didn't, they rejected the grace and the beauty of God. So which way are we moving? Are we moving towards Jesus or are we moving away from him? Just because you show up at church every week, just because you might tithe some money, just because you're in a home group doesn't necessarily mean that you're moving towards Jesus, what's going on in your heart. And just because somebody doesn't necessarily look like you think they ought to look or act like you ought to act, they ought to act, doesn't necessarily mean they're moving away from him. The question is, where are they and where are they moving? And that's why SunWest for years has had a mantra of, we don't care where you've been. We don't care... We don't care where you've been. We just care about where you're going. We care which direction you're going. So this idea of lifelong movement towards Jesus, I talked about last week, this discipleship language uh, that Scripture uses about talking about, you know, even physical stages as a metaphor for growing in maturity in a relationship with God. Uh, infant, child, adolescent, parenthood. Uh, I'm going to simplify this and just call them uh, D1, D2, D3, D4, just discipleship, four stages of discipleship. You know, so when we decide to follow Jesus, we're in a place of infancy, and hopefully by the time we get to a D4 level, uh, we are actually reproducing other disciples. We are inviting other people into this life-giving relationship with Jesus, and as they follow Jesus, they actually bring other people on the journey. So this is uh, you know, that's a mature level of understanding of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But I want to talk about something else this morning. Before someone decides to turn towards Jesus, before someone decides to actually move in that direction, uh, I think we have to understand that there are 
The next step for somebody to move towards Jesus isn't to say a prayer. Or the next step for somebody to move towards Jesus isn't to show up at church. The next step towards Jesus might look like something that you don't even have in mind. And, and so to even help our minds around this, I'm going to, like we have D1 to D4, I'm going to introduce M1 to M4, and the M stands for just a missional, the, the word missional or mission, a missional impulse. Uh, and each numeral with the prefix M indicates one significant cultural barrier to meaningful communication of the gospel. An, an obvious example of such a barrier would be language. All would agree that if you have to reach across a language barrier, you have a problem, and it's hard to communicate meaningfully, right? So that would be an example of a, you know, M1. There is a, there's a cultural, there's some kind of barrier there of communication. But other barriers might be race, economic class, history, religion, worldview, culture. The more boundaries one has to cross, the harder meaningful conversation will be. So for an ins instance, in, in an Islamic context, this good news of what God is like, this, this gospel message, has struggled to make any significant inroads because religion, race, and a whole lot of history make for multiple challenges of cultural barriers to have a meaningful gospel conversation. And so let's go back to the beginning. I want to highlight something. Is this making sense? Yeah, for three of you? Yeah, so... That's great. Uh, so th this is where attractional, a, an attractional philosophy of ministry will fail. Because we are a sent people of God, and whatever that means to our identity as God's people, it must also sometimes mean we must go to where the people are. If we fail to go, that's why Jesus says, go make disciples in your going, as you go. If we fail to go to the people, then to encounter the gospel meaningfully, they must come. This is the inbuilt assumption of the attractional church, and it requires that a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus or desire to follow Jesus, that they do all the cross-cultural work to find Jesus. Make, note, make no mistake, for many people, coming to church involves some serious cross-cultural work for them. They have to be the missionaries. Another very important fact you must remember here is that we know from old research that within three to five years of a person becoming a follower of Jesus, they will have no meaningful relationships with anyone outside the church. This is ridiculous. So assuming we bring them to church and we happen to do a good job of effectively socializing them into our culture, this becomes problematic because they can't be the missionary people that God calls them to be, and they actually end up severing the very relationships that God's calling them to invest in. I'm going to invite a couple of good friends to the stage with me, uh, Dar Ramirez and uh, Sharon Pahal. You guys can give them a nice warm welcome as they, as they come up here. And I thought it would be good in the context of of our topic this morning. Oh, we got Brad and Sam too. We got the whole crew. This is awesome. Um, yeah, you guys can. That. Come over here, Sam. Don't stand behind me. That makes me nervous. Um, 
I, I, I love, uh, you're going to hear their, their hearts in a second. I love the hearts of uh, my friends here and, uh, uh, and them actually moving out and breaking cultural barriers to build inroads and relationships with people that would actually never darken the door to come into a place like this. Um, and so I want, uh, I'm going to start with Dar and uh, Dar and Sam, they've been involved in leading various ministries through the, through the years here and they um, it's kind of taken on a bit of a new initiative or new direction um, with some things that you guys have been a part of for a while, uh, but also some new initiatives in that. Uh, and it's kind of under the umbrella that we're calling Breaking Barriers, uh, which is, you know, obviously exactly what we're talking about here this morning. Uh, and so can you share a little bit about Breaking Barriers and the different ministries that are involved with it? Um, so, I'm really nervous about this. <laughs> Breaking Barriers is just really a group of people. Um, we have a passion for walking with others and helping them have a relationship with Jesus. Um, we have an intercultural focus, but we're also intergenerational and interdenominational. So it's really just been a step out in faith for us. It's been learning the needs of others and trying to walk alongside them. And then through this, God... Um, this amazing God-given giftedness has blessed all of us. And through trying to meet the needs, we've encountered many barriers. Since, like Matt said, it's been language, mobility, religion, age, and mostly fear of judgment. So we wanted to create a place that was safe in which individuals could challenge their needs. And so the, through this, um, the Friday night gathering was created. Um, and then it was followed by a Saturday morning devotional and coffee that we call Perks and Praise. Um, and then lastly, the ELL that we have every Wednesday. And so through these things, we've been learning um, to celebrate, build community. We've learned our failures and our joys. Um, and as the community has been building, we've been celebrating and praying for transformations. Um, and now this is just how we do life as a family. Um, so the best example that we could think of when trying to put this all into one piece was kind of like a, an airport. People come and go, some are frequent flyers and some travel less, um, but we just hope that they get a, a bit of experience and just a little bit of how Jesus walks. And so we feel very spirit-led and pray continually as a group and trying to honor everybody around us in doing this. Okay, second question. Uh, there are many barriers that prevent someone from jumping into a community like this one this morning and participating. What type of barriers do you see uh, that need to be broken? Hmm. So this is a question that's not only looked at by SunWest. Um, Dar and I went to a, a conference at uh, Ambrose University, and it was on Scattered Together, Embracing the Global Trend of Diaspora. And so it was uh, very interesting. It talked, uh, the fellow that presented said there are 8 billion people right now on the move, whether they are being pushed out of their homes or whether they're being pulled. Mm -hmm. So there are people moving everywhere. They gave us um, six steps, which was great, so mm -hmm. you can share some of these. Mm -hmm. um, today I just want to share two of them with us. Um, do we understand that there is a growing global local reality of people on the move? Do we really understand that? Do we, are we willing to go and make disciples of all nations? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's one thing we've got to do. Another thing is, is do we have a loving burden for the strangers in our midst? 
in Deuteronomy, it says, are you to love those who are foreigners? For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Mm. For me, we need to remember that we too are foreigners in Canada. Sure, we've been here for many generations, but what about your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents? Someone, someone had the willingness to step out and welcome them into Canada. Mm. Should I go to the next question? Sure. Yeah? Okay. Um, so, Sharon, you're, uh, you have lots of experience and passion around uh, ELL. Um, and even in my conversation with you, it's been a learning experience because I used to call it ESL, and she said, don't call it ESL, call it ELL. So maybe tell us a little bit why we call it ELL, and then, uh, and then share a bit about what's happening on Wednesdays and what that's all about. So for quite a while, the industry would call it English as a second language. But uh, we understand that for most people, English is not a second language for them. They're speaking three, four, five, six languages. Mm. Um, so to honor the people that we are working with, we say, no, you're an English language learner mm. or an English, uh, English as another language. So Sam Darbra and I have been planting the idea of an ELL gathering for quite a while. Um, in the new year, um, with Sam, some of his connections that he has and some of the connections I have, we invited them to an evening of breaking barriers where English language learners thrive in our community. Uh, on Wednesdays, a few English speakers gather with newcomers to celebrate and build community. We gather around a table to learn and laugh and experience English with new friends. The discussion is driven by the needs of the group. We start where the individual is. Mm -hmm. So we have so, some newcomers who, who cannot speak any English at all. So we start out with something as very simple as, I am Sharon, you are Matt, she is Dar. We start out at very basic places. But then we also have other English language learners who have lived in this country for a number of years, but still there's a barrier. They don't know how to talk at work, these crazy Canadian idioms that we use. So we work as a community to try and help them overcome that barrier. One of the biggest errors I see is we think we know what people need. Mm -hmm. That's not true. We need to stop and listen, which is difficult for me. <laughs> um, we need to stop and listen to what people really truly need. Yeah. Is there a story that would uh, help us get a feel or understanding for the type of relationships and ministry that's occurring in what you guys are doing? Sure. So our first evening was January the 10th this year. It was minus 22 degrees Celsius outside. It was 7 o'clock, and it was dark. We were ready, but we didn't know if anybody would come. God brought five brave English language learners that night. We chatted about the weather in their own home countries of Syria, Egypt, Venezuela, and China. There's like a 50-degree difference from where those people mm -hmm. came to coming here. Mm -hmm. we, we talked about what do we wear in Canada? talked about layers, not just one big fluffy coat. What do you need? Eight weeks later, this past week, our ELL gathering continues to grow, despite the worst weather in Calgary and in, in a long time. Over the past week, we've had 14 different individuals. They come from Mexico, from China, from El Salvador, from Colombia, Iran, Egypt, Syria, and Venezuela. We are children. We are parents. We are grandparents. 
We have Christians, we have non-Christians, we have Muslims, we have people of no faith. We are a diverse group of people, and God is bringing the mission to us here. Mm. We are working to break the barrier immigrants and refugees have to allow them to fully engage in their new Canadian homeland. 1 Peter 3.8 uh, Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. That is awesome. I wish we had more time to share more stories, but uh, this isn't. This is just the beginning of a conversation. But I, I wanted us to be aware that um, this uh, this missional uh, breaking barriers that we're talking about that we ha- we have some people in our midst that are actively doing this, and I think it's worth celebrating. Um, and I think it's a taste of what God is calling us to be as a community. Um, you know, Sundays are great. You know, this is great. Uh, uh, but I think God's calling us to be to move from a, an event, attractional kind of body to a 24-7 incarnational, missional, all-the-time presence kind of body. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've joked around about it before, but you look around in here, most of us kind of look the same, sound the same, uh, smell the same, uh, and you don't think you smell, but you, you know, you talk to people from other cultures, like, you guys smell like cheese and dairy, you know, they... <laughs> Like, you smell like curry, you guys smell like cheese. So you smell like cheese more than you know. Um, but, but I believe that God is calling us to break down barriers. And it doesn't start with people coming to church. It actually starts with wherever they're at and us being willing to break those barriers, to be, do the uncomfortable steps, and instead of expecting them to do the uncomfortable steps, to come to us. So thank you guys for demonstrating that and leading us in that. Appreciate that. <clears throat> I love what's going on there. And, and as a part of that, you know, we, we've been talking about a, a translation ministry uh, that we'd like to start up uh, at some point soon on Sunday mornings, and we'll probably start with a Spanish language uh, and then maybe move beyond that. Um, and again, that's not for everybody because someone who's at an M3, M4 place, that's, this isn't the place that they're going to come to, but they will go to an ELL. Uh, but there might be others that are at an M1 place that they're, uh, there's a there's an ability to have a certain level of dialogue and conversation uh, that would enjoy being a part of a gathering like this, but don't feel quite like they fit because of certain cultural barriers that aren't gospel barriers. They're just their language barriers, their assumption barriers. You know, Sharon's even told me like the jokes you tell, they need to change. Uh, so um, as I get less funny, you'll know why. It's, uh, I, but I think we need to start thinking differently. And, uh, and lastly, I just want to end with this picture in Revelation 7. It says that after this, I saw a vast crowd. And so this is, you know, John seeing a picture, a vision of God's kingdom when Jesus returns and, and makes everything right and the new heavens and the new earth. And he sees this vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, which is Jesus. They were clothed in white robes, which represents they're their, their clean because of what Jesus has done in front of God. They can stand before God and held palm branches, a sign of celebration in their hands. So every nation, tribe, people, and language. The church I see is a church that understands that God's 
church doesn't have a mission, but God's mission has a church. I see a church that doesn't create barriers for people to know Jesus, but one that aggressively breaks down barriers for people to know Jesus, even religious barriers. The church I see understands that church is not a service you attend, but a people that you belong with. I see a church that embraces the diversity of the culture, language, and lives of those around it, and it lives as a suburb of this new Jerusalem here in Calgary, Alberta where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation can belong and worship Jesus together. I see a church that actively resists the temptation to fall into upkeep and maintenance. I see a church that doesn't expect others to do the cross-cultural work, but joyfully embraces this task. I see a church that is worshiping together in multiple languages. I see a church that has a dynamic translation ministry that enables many people of different tongues to participate in a faith community. I see a church that moves away from simply putting on services one morning a week to having a 24-7 incarnational presence in a community. I see a church that chooses the discomfort of mission over the comfort of maintenance. I see a church not full of Christians, because who knows what that means when people use that term, but full of Christ followers. I see a church that is sensitive to those who are seeking in that it explains everything and assumes nothing. But this church is uncompromising in the radical, countercultural life message and hope of Jesus Christ. It is a church full of people that are not accused of being religious fanatics, but are accused of being Jesus fanatics. I see a church that cares more about where you're going than where you've been. And I see a church that proclaims unashamedly the good news that Jesus is God with flesh on, who came from heaven to earth, breaking every single barrier there was so that every human would know they are loved by God and invited into a lifelong relationship with him. This is the church that I see. You know, I, I got an email uh, this past week and uh, I didn't ask for permission to do this, so I'm going to say this <laughs> say this vaguely. But uh, an email from a, from a guy this week that just said, hey, I want to, um, he's doing a project in school and, you know, doesn't identify with, uh, with Christianity, but uh, realized that maybe some of his thoughts and perceptions were based on ignorance, not an actual experience. And he took the bold, courageous move of emailing just saying, hey, uh, can I participate with your faith community this weekend so I can just kind of see what you guys are all about? And, uh, and I love that. And a, but a part of me just felt sad in a way because, um, you know, we live among people that I think maybe haven't really seen what the heart of Christianity is. And it's become about a whole lot of other things that Jesus never intended. Uh, and so I hope that we get to a day where people don't have to take cross-cultural risks when they have people that love Jesus that are doing life right next to them uh, but aren't sharing that. And so, um, so I just want to just acknowledge that, uh, that new friend that's here this morning and just say, hey, thanks for risking, and, uh, and I want to be a faith community that risks too. Um, I think we can learn a lot from that. So. Um, yeah, I just, I'm going to pray. And if, uh, if you were, yeah, if you just sense in your heart that you were actually moving away from Jesus, 
You know, the, the Bible uses this churchy word called repentance, and really what it is, you know, we talk about this arrows, the word repentance just simply means a, a self-acknowledgement that we're moving away from Jesus, and I got to actually turn around and go the other direction. And maybe there's things in your life this morning that you recognize, hey, I'm actually not pursuing Jesus. I'm not living in the way that he's calling me to live, and I'm not living in a way that loves him and honors him. And this is, becomes a moment of turning. And perhaps there's people in your life, like my friend uh, Mike in high school, that I put a religious kind of boundary on, and I didn't actually reflect the heart of Jesus to him. Uh, and I wonder how often I do that. And maybe there's people that God's placed in your life that uh, you actually need to break down some barriers for them so they can see what Jesus is and what he's not about. Uh, and I'm going to pray for you that God would highlight those people, but also just give you the, the courage to break barriers and to love people well, because that's what Jesus is calling us to do and to point people to him. So why don't you stand with me again as we, as we close in prayer. Yeah, Father, I, I thank you that your love and your grace is so scandalous. It's offensive. You know, we see over and over again, Jesus, when you were on earth, that you offended and you offended and you offended, uh, not because you were so exclusive, because your love was so radically inclusive and that the religious folks of the day didn't really know what to do with that. And so, we're, Father, where we are religious, where we're offended by your radical grace, would you remind us, as even Sharon said, that we ourselves were foreigners, that because of your radical grace, we were allowed to come to you. And Lord, I pray that in our lives that we would, we would be a reflection of that grace, a reflection of that love, that we would be boundary breakers. Lord, that anything that hinders people from seeing the beauty of who you, who you are, Lord, that we would just be about wrecking those things. Lord, that we would not shy away from who you are. Lord, that you would teach us to balance what it means to be uh, just completely in love with you and careless in our love and our followership of you but Lord, also to be sensitive in how we break barriers of people that see things differently, that have different values, that maybe come from different religious backgrounds, different languages. And Lord, that we would do the bold work, the courageous work um, of breaking those boundaries. Father, I pray for those this morning that have, are moving away from you. Uh, Lord, I trust through your spirit who is alive and is present, Lord, that you've actually just tugged on their heart this morning, that you've said you've, you're actually moving in a, in a direction that is hindering their relationship with you or their relationship with others, and you're calling them back to yourself. So, Father, we just say thanks for this faith community. We thank you for where you're leading us, uh, and we just want to say yes, Jesus, uh, to your leadership, your kingship in our lives. Amen.